This episode of Boss Level Podcast is sponsored by NIST. About 10 years ago, the Finnish oil company Neste decided to invest in a more sustainable future. The company put nearly $2 billion in the development and production of renewable fuels. It was a bold move. Employees and investors were skeptical that it would be profitable. And in fact, Neste ended up making losses for some years. But now, almost half of their profits come from renewable fuels. Nesta has become the world's biggest producer of renewable diesel. In 2015, Nesta Oil dropped the word oil from its name to signify the change they are making. Learn more on how you can join their journey towards sustainability at the end of this episode. This is Sami, and you're listening to the Boss Level Podcast. For this episode, my guest is Henrik Knieberi. Henrik is a prominent figure in the Agile community. So, for example, if you've seen the video on Spotify engineering culture, that video was created by Henrik. He has also authored several books on Agile. Henrik is also one of the early guests of the podcast, and the previous episode we did was about two years ago. Back then, we discussed Hendrik's agile coaching work at Lego and Spotify, and how he helped his kids win a robot battle against experienced programmers. But now, recently, he has made a really interesting shift in his professional focus towards something that he feels is way more important than agile coaching. He's focusing on reducing the impact of climate change. We talk about how to be climate neutral, how to invest in climate projects, the community Henrik is running called Climate Crisplet, and how companies should deal with climate change. This episode was recorded via video conferencing because flying to meet Henrik would have pretty much defeated the whole message of the episode. Enjoy. Let's just delve right into it. So you've actually recently made some rather significant changes in your professional focus. So can you just elaborate what are those changes and what's the story behind them? It happened pretty suddenly. For the past decade, I've been working mostly with this agile, lean stuff, helping companies improve. And in the background, there's been this rising chorus of like, uh, oh no, the climate, <laughs> uh, we're in trouble and it's been this background noise. And I think I've been unconsciously thinking that, oh, that's a big problem. Hope mommy and daddy fix it. <laughs> kind of thinking, right? The grown-ups, the politicians, they'll fix it. And things seem to be heading in the right direction. So then suddenly this guy won the election in the United States and things started turning south. And I actually got really depressed after that vote. It was the first time in my whole life that I got really depressed. Um for like days, I couldn't function really. And I started thinking about why, why am I so depressed? Um, this is not like me. And I realized it's because of this doomsday feeling. And I figured that to get out of that, I can get involved somehow. 
So I started reading up on the whole climate change thing. And the more I read about it, the more kind of freaked out I got. I'm like, my God, it's even worse than it sounded. (laughs) But then as I dug further into it, I also realized that, hey, we've actually figured out the root cause of the problem. And we know what needs to happen. And a lot of the good stuff actually is happening too. We just need to hurry the hell up. (laughs) Yeah. So that triggered like a change. I'm like, why am I spending time helping teams deliver software more effectively when there's this other more important problem? I don't know if I can influence it, but I'll be damned if if I don't try. So that was part of it. And also part of it was like, how can I look my kids in in the eye, not having at least tried to do something about the problem that's mostly going to affect them and not really me, to be honest. (laughs) That's very true. And and just to talk about the practical or the pragmatic ramifications of what you're doing. So you've been a prominent figure in the agile community for at least like the last 10 years. And now if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're actually doing is you're shifting your focus away from the agile stuff into the climate stuff. Is this correct? As sort of, I'm shifting away from the coaching part of it. To me, agile is a problem solving approach. So I'm using that shamelessly. (laughs) But my work is no longer being at companies coaching them. I I do have a little bit of that, but quite little. And and those clients are mostly working within the climate space as well. And you're actually, what you're hoping to do is you're hoping to build a new career for yourself out of this climate change. That's my naive, uh, optimistic view. (laughs) (laughs) And if I don't succeed with that, at the very least, I can use my rather privileged position that I don't have to work full-time to support myself. So I can work part-time to support myself, and then I can work the rest of the time with climate stuff, whether or not it pays any bills. So let's talk about the stuff that you're actually doing now after shifting focus to this new focus area. So let's start with the carbon manifesto, because that's one of the first things that I, uh, I noticed that you started working on. So what's the Carbon Manifesto? So the Carbon Manifesto is, like everything else, an experiment, a social experiment. I was inspired by the Agile Manifesto. So a lot of people read the Agile Manifesto and got inspired and signed it and then started doing stuff. So I'm like, why not try to see if we can do the same thing with the climate? So it's just a website where you can make a public statement and say, hey, I'm going to go carbon neutral, which in effect means you're going to reduce your personal footprint and then carbon offset the rest so that you get down to zero. Part of it was to see if people will sign, but also to generate a bit of buzz because the obvious question from people when they see that is, what, how do I do that? And that's the question I want people to ask. Yes. So, and I also figure if people publicly sign something like that, then their friends are going to be like, hey, well, that's interesting. What, what, what does that mean? And it might spark some conversation. It worked for me because I was like, when I saw that, I was like, how can you be neutral? How's that even possible? Exactly. It's a bit provocative. <laughs> But I I feel that I've learned enough now that I can make that statement and say, hey, listen, there are ways. (laughs) Yeah, and actually, let's let's delve deeper into that. So uh, there's a couple of parts to this. There's first understanding your carbon emissions, then there's reducing them, and then there's offsetting the rest. So let's talk first about calculating your own carbon emissions. So how do you have any tips for that? How can you do that? There are a number of different approaches. And the most important thing to keep in mind is that you don't need to get an exact number because it's going to be wrong. (laughs) You just need a rough number. Because then when you reduce your footprint, if you just exaggerate a little bit, if you just reduce a little bit extra, you know, it doesn't matter if your exact calculation is a bit off. But if you just Google, you know, carbon calculators, you'll find hundreds, but most of them are a bit too complicated for my taste. You spend a lot of time filling in a bunch of forms. It's kind of boring and it gives you an exact number that's likely to be misleading. So the approach that I prefer is to take a top-down view 
instead of listing everything you do, all the flights you take, uh, what food you eat, where you live, all these details, the average footprint per person on Earth is about three to 18 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per year. So just using that number, if you know the basics of which things would put you on the upper end of that scale, then you can just guess. So for example, if you fly a lot, if you drive a lot of fuel cars, if you eat a lot of meat, and if you live in a country that uses a lot of coal and oil power, then you're going to be at the way top end of that scale, probably past the top, maybe 20 or 30 tons per year, for example, and vice versa. So that's probably the simplest way that you just take that interval and make a guess where you are. Another thing you can do is look at statistics about the average footprint per country. And that's easy to find in Wikipedia or just Google it. And you might see my country, the average is maybe 10 to 12 or whatever. And then you say, well, okay, relatively speaking, I'm probably on the upper end or on the lower end of that scale. And then you pick a number. But for most people, it's going to be it's somewhere in the range of three to 18 on average tons per year. So a good rule of thumb is one ton per month. If you don't know what your footprint is, just assume it's one ton per month and you won't be completely off. If you eat a lot of meat, if you consume coal-based energy, and if you travel, like fly a lot, then you're going to be on the upper end of the scale. Yeah. What can we do to reduce, like if I want to reduce my personal carbon emissions? So if we talk about my personal direct physical footprint, well, let's take one thing at a time. Driving. Driving is in a way the easy one because you could drive less, depending, depending of course on where you live and of course things like where you work, right? But in some cases, it's just a matter of saying, hey, I don't need the car to get to work. In my case, we used to have two cars in my family. We went down to one about four years ago, not for climate reasons, but mainly for cost reasons and also for hassle reasons. (laughs) One car instead of two means less stuff to repair and maintain. And I concluded that it takes now an hour for me to get to, let's say, Spotify in Stockholm end to end just by train and subway and bus and walking in the forest. It takes longer, one hour instead of 45 minutes. But that's time that I can use. So that, that's good for the climate and actually turned out to be good for me as well. So if you have that option to just skip the car and take the bus and subway, that would probably be option number one. For some people, taking the bike is perfectly feasible. And if you still need to drive a lot, then getting an electric car, I would say getting an electric car would be a must. And that used to be an unfair statement because they're really expensive. <laughs> But the price is going down. And now actually the latest Tesla model, for example, Model 3 is actually starting to be comparable to a decent fuel car. So yeah, drive less or drive electric is one. Yes, Flying is trickier. I tried replacing flying with train. It wasn't really feasible except for in certain conditions. I wrote an article, an article about that. But if it's possible to replace with train, great. If it's possible to fly less, great. But in general, I would say flying is the hardest one to do anything about yet so far. Yeah. You probably also fly for business quite a lot. So uh, some of the stuff can be, of course, like just getting more familiar with uh, using remote tools and collaborating online. So that's kind of one of the fairly easy ways. And actually, I think that's kind of a skill. It's something that you get better at when you actually train and try to learn how to do it properly. It's really awkward in like the first times you try it, but then when you kind of get the hang of it and you do it constantly, it actually works out just fine. Yeah, that, that's actually, I'm glad you bring that up because I think that needs to be emphasized more, the whole remote thing. Because nowadays the tools are good and most people have good internet connections. So all the dumb problems we had in the past, we don't have them as often. But yeah, um, uh, reduce non-essential flying. Then the big surprise to me was food. Meat is actually a real problem. So I started look, looking at the source of that so I thought it was a bit exaggerated. 
But then when I looked at the actual scientific sources of that, I concluded that, okay, this is real. This is big. Probably around 10 to 20% of the whole footprint of what's being emitted around the world is from beef. <laughs> so I won't go into the, into the details about why, but, but what it basically means is if you can skip meat entirely or at least reduce it a lot, that's actually a very simple way to make a difference. So I've been experimenting with that myself. I'm a, I'm a meat eater. I like meat. So I figure if, you know, if I can learn to eat other food, maybe, maybe it's possible for other meat eaters as well. So I concluded that, no, I can't eliminate meat from my diet entirely, but I've reduced it by maybe 90% and concluded that, you know, there's other meats that are actually fine. And actually there's a lot of really good vegetarian dishes too. So it's not really a sacrifice to change the diet. Yeah, I've had the very similar experience that I've started reducing the amount of meat that I eat and I've started like choosing the vegetarian option when, whenever that's feasible and when there's a decent vegetarian option available. And actually, that's most of the time. Most of the time, there's a really good vegetarian option. Five years ago, I just would have not even looked at on the menu. <laughs> I think a really important point too, a lot of climate change kind of advocates are sometimes tend to be a bit dogmatic and say, no, you shouldn't fly at all. You shouldn't eat any meat at all. You shouldn't. And that tends to turn people off. So I think it's really important to be kind of pragmatic and saying that, listen, if you really want to have your beef, you know, maybe you can reduce it a little bit or, okay, well, keep the beef, but get an electric car, right? <laughs> or vice versa. If you really need to fly a lot, okay, but do other things. There's always something people can do. Yeah. And I mean, uh, if you reduce the amount of meat that you eat in a week from 10 kilos to one kilo, for example, if, if you eat a lot of meat, that, that does have an impact, even though you're not going down to zero. One other thing that's going on, which is great for meat eaters, is uh, artificial meat. <laughs> Yep. A company called Art, uh, Impossible Foods, for example, seems to have invented a hamburger that actually tastes just like a hamburger, but with purely uh, plant-based stuff inside it. They're kind of expensive still, but the technology is, is one of the tracks that that is helping us. That's that's one way of thinking about it, that we need to find alternatives for meat that we can like do have the same dishes, but without the meat. But then again, I mean, having hamburgers for something that's a cultural thing that yes. like we've learned to appreciate <laughs> and it's not something that like it's built into the human dna that we need to have hamburgers <laughs> it is something that we can actually just change yeah it's a stepping stone though cuz it's hard for people to change maybe the, the next generation i think there'll be a good number of people who if they go to a hamburger joint and there is an option that's vegetarian that tastes just as good as the beef one i think a good number of people would choose that option just cuz they know it's better for the climate which is great Yep. But yeah, ideally, uh, it's great if more people, including myself, learn that there's a lot of other food out there that doesn't look like the meat stuff, but still tastes really good. <laughs> okay, uh, so we've talked about diet, we've talked about travel. I guess another important thing to talk about is energy. Yes. So about energy, it depends a little bit on where you live, but if you're in a country that has choice in terms of you can choose which energy provider you use, then make that choice. The way that works is interesting. I mean, it's the same electrons that flow into your house, regardless of, of which power provider you're using. But what you're doing is you're paying someone for that energy. And if you're paying that money to the renewable energy provider, then you're supporting that development. So uh, yeah, if you can pick a, an energy provider that uses mostly renewable energy, solar, wind, bio, etc., even nuclear, then you're definitely doing the climate a favor. And what's happened now also, which is great, is that just the past couple of years, solar panels have become economically good thing. In fact, right now, as we speak, I'm installing a bunch of panels or I'm <laughs> uh, out, out, outside, outside my house in a field. And I see all over the place uh, panels going up on roofs. It's basically a good deal economically, but also good for the climate. You sent me a picture of the solar panels that you're installing. And I was just like, wow, that is, that is amazing. So 
what are you hoping to get from the solar panels? I mean, what area are you hoping to get electricity for all the houses in, in the property? Or what's your goal with that? Well, there's a number of goals. One is to uh, learn about solar, because I realized that solar is one part of the solution for the energy problem. And that's the solution that has come the furthest. So I want to learn everything about solar. So I've been diving into this. That's part of it. The second is that I'm actually involved in a startup that builds technology for these panels. We build a smart meter, which measures the amount of energy produced. And later on, is also going to control some devices in your house based on when energy is clean and cheap. So basically, uh, I want to be dogfooding <laughs> my product. And then also, it's good for the climate. Although it's not as good for the climate as I thought it would be here in Sweden, because our energy is actually quite clean in Sweden. So it is still good for the climate. But I mean, if I had taken that same money and invested in solar panels and somewhere else in the world, it would have been better for the climate than putting them on my field here in Sweden. <laughs> but then there's also the economic side of it that I, I, I'm going to earn a return on investment on this. So it's basically a good deal. Yeah. And, and we'll be a little bit more self-sufficient if the power grid runs into trouble, which it sometimes does. Then we have our own electricity. And they kind of look cool. So that, yeah, there's, there's a number of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's something that you can talk about at parties. So I have 192 solar panels. <laughs> How many do you have? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. So what you're saying when, you were, when you're talking about going carbon neutral is that you're saying that you're not going to be able to get your emissions down to zero. That's not possible. But you can get to net zero, which means that you try to reduce the carbon emissions as much as you can, and then you offset the rest, which means that the net effect will be zero. Yes. So basically, what that means is the amount of carbon being emitted because of you being alive is the same as if you didn't exist. That's what I mean by carbon neutral. <laughs> Perfect. What are the things that you can do to offset the rest of your carbon emissions? That's the interesting part. I've looked into that quite a lot and concluded that the whole thing is a mess. It's really confusing to find out how to do offsetting, how to do effective offsetting. The two problems with that is, A, there are a lot of misconceptions and a lot of iffy, kind of untrustworthy solutions to carbon offsetting. And the second thing is the price efficiency varies a lot. What I mean by price efficiency is how much you pay to offset one ton. I've realized that that varies from about $3 to maybe $150 or $200 per ton. So a price variance of about 100 times almost for the same exact product, which is crazy if you think about it. So what I've done is together with a couple of friends, we've created a site called goclimateneutral.org where we basically solve this problem for you. It's a service where if you want to offset whatever you have left of your footprint, you pay a monthly fee to our site, depending on what your footprint is. You pay a monthly fee and then we basically offset for you and what we do is we continuously look for the most price efficient and credible ways of offsetting. So for example, recently we invested in a hydro plant in Vietnam. And that hydro plant is a so-called gold standard project. And gold standard is a certification body backed by the World Wildlife Fund and, and the um, United Nations, which basically goes around certifying that, hey, this project here actually it's making a climate difference. If these guys didn't build this hydro plant, we would have used this coal instead, and there would have been this many thousand or million tons more being emitted. So they do the job of certifying that this is real and not just somebody making up numbers. 
So that's great. But the only problem then is we, it needs to be price efficient because you can find a, a gold standard certified project that's still kind of expensive. So you won't get very many tons for your dollars. But what we do with our site is we spend time finding the really price efficient ones and we get kind of volume discounts by aggregating a number of people and making one investment. So in this case, we bought a thousand tons of carbon reduction certificates, I guess you might call them. They're called something else, but that's pretty much what it amounts to, which is kind of like a proof from this certification body that here's proof that you have stopped a thousand tons of carbon dioxide from being emitted. And we pay for that. And the price we paid for that was about $2 per ton, which is really cheap compared to many other ways. So that's one example. But other types of climate projects are stuff like supporting the development of clean cooking stoves in places like Rwanda and Africa. You might think like, well, okay, what's the point? Well, what that does, it makes the stoves more efficient. So you don't need to burn as much stuff to make your food. And then that's just math. You can add up the carbon impact of that. So there's lots and lots of different ways of using your money to reduce carbon emissions elsewhere in the world and also doing people a favor in those places. So the people in Vietnam, they're not using coal power anymore. The air is going to be better. Um, The people in Rwanda will have more efficient stoves. They won't have as much smoke. Uh, We have projects in Kenya where we are rolling out solar panels to villages that don't have electricity at all. And um, well, the villages get electricity, which is great. They can study in the evenings. They have light. They don't need to smell the foul kerosene smoke, but it also does the climate a favor. So basically we spend time doing this research and abstracting away all the messy, gory details of carbon offsetting. I think that's important stuff to do because, I mean, one of the things that's stopping people from offsetting or doing anything like it's a similar thing with investing. People know that it would be good to invest in the long term into maybe passive index funds, but it's so hard to pick the funds that you just never end up doing that. Yeah. So I, I guess you're kind of trying to do the same thing here as like you're trying to make it simple enough for people to actually do it. Yes. There's a little nuance there that I want to mention, though. Um, Go Climate Neutral is a site where you pay a fee. It's kind of like a self-imposed carbon tax. That money goes away. You don't get that money back. We take care of it and we're transparent about it. But it's a cost for you. It's not an investment in terms of money. So I guess one argument that you can make about the uh, Go Climate Neutral is that it's just a way for you to pay to get a good conscience for yourself. Yes. And in a way, it's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And uh, we've thought a lot about that. that, uh, Is it going to be so that people who pay to offset their lives are not going to make any other changes? We don't think so. We're making a bet that people who take us one small first step will be more likely to take more steps after. And that's based on some data we've seen on companies where companies that do offsetting are also more likely to do other things to reduce their direct emissions. That's one part of it. And the other is just personal experience as a change agent. You get someone to make a small change, they're going to be more likely to make more changes. And in, in this case, you're paying a fee. Now you have an incentive to reduce your emissions because you're paying for them. <laughs> yep. Plus, you're getting a monthly newsletter with information and tips. And you might be telling your friends about this. And you're basically becoming more aware of a problem that you maybe were kind of blissfully unaware of in the past. So, yes, there are going to be some people who don't make any change at all and just pay. Well, first of all, they probably wouldn't have made a change anyway, maybe. (laughs) Plus, at least their money is doing some good, which is better than nothing. Exactly. I I think that's one of the really important things to understand that there is that even if that's the case, even if someone participates just to pay for a good conscience, 
it's still making an effort. I mean, it, there is an impact for the money that they put in. And that's, I, I think there's a lot of causes that you can put your money into and on a monthly basis. And, and a lot of people just say no to all of them because there's stories of people like misusing the money or that there's, there's no real impact and, and, and so on. Even if it's true that sometimes the money is misused, even if it's true that sometimes the impact is not that huge, it is still less effective to not do anything. Yes. So we'll, we'll see. It's, it's an experiment. Uh, we'll, we'll see if it takes off. Our goal is to get 1,000 uh, subscribers by the end of the year. And if we do that, then we're happy. If we don't do that, we'll have to rethink the whole thing. Sure. And another thing that you can do to offset, or actually there's several other things that you can do to offset your uh, carbon emissions, but let's talk about one more that you're involved with. So it's called jointrine.com. So what is that? Trine is a Swedish company that offers a crowdfunding solution for solar panels in Africa. And what that means is, I mentioned the example of solar panels giving electricity to people in Kenya, right? And Trine is the company that kind of makes that possible. There are obviously other companies as well. But what's interesting about Trine is that they've built an end-to-end solution, which is really brilliant. So I'll, I like the company so much that I'm actually um, now a part owner of the company. I'm also, I'm also a coach. They are my client, and I'm helping them try to become a super agile company all the way from the beginning, which is really fun. But anyway, uh, basically, you can invest money on their site, just like any other crowdfunding situation. And that money is used to lend money to solar entrepreneurs in Africa. And what those companies do is rent solar panels to villages around, for example, Kenya. And that helps the villages and also reduces the carbon footprint. And it's a loan. So that money gets paid back. These are existing companies that already have a business. So it's not super high risk. And since it gets paid back, you get a payoff on your investment. Of course, like with any investment, there is some risk involved. But I mean, uh, this would be comparable to uh, buying stock for companies that are not super high risk. So that's what Trine is. And I think it's a great solution. It's a simple way to help help out. And the main difference between Trine and Go Climate Neutral is Go Climate Neutral is kind of simpler. You just sign up and start paying a monthly fee and that's it. Trine, you need to make a decision which project do I want to invest in. And then you also you're going to get some of that money back probably. And you need, then you need to decide what to do with it. It's a positive problem, right? I'm getting my money back again. But it does add one more layer of complexity. So I, I think of these as complementary solutions. Some will prefer investing and some will prefer just paying a fee. I still want to talk about the climate crisp flood. So I would actually like to hear like, what did you start the climate crisp flood? What, what is it and why did you start it? So the background was that the way... The Agile Crisplet started at Crisp. Crisp is my consulting company. And I started doing Agile consulting there about 10 years ago. Before then, I was mostly doing Java development. And most of us were, in fact, developers. And I just kind of slipped into the Agile stuff. And I felt that, hey, maybe there's other people at Crisp that want to join me with this. So I created this thing called the Crisplet, which is just an internal group, in a sense. And I told my buddies that, hey, I'm interested in this thing called Agile. Who wants to join? And then people joined me. And it became this really cool thing that is now a big part of our business at Crisp. So I was inspired by that. I'm thinking maybe I can pull off the same stunt again. So I basically told my buddies again at Crisp that, hey, I want to go into the climate area now. Who wants to join? And then half of Crisp raised their hands, which is like 20 people. I'm like, whoa. (laughs) And I realized that this is a worldwide problem. It can't just be a bunch of Swedes here. So we decided to do an experiment and created an international open Crisplet. And uh, that's the background. So I basically wanted to find other people in the world that share the same interest, both people that are experts and in the field 
but also people like me who are kind of new and want to get in the field and make a difference. I want to connect those people. So that's pretty much what the Crisplet is. It's just a lightweight online community where we meet physically sometimes and we meet online like this sometimes. And we inspire people and we inspire each other and we help find, you know, for example, Go Climate Neutral would probably not have existed if it wasn't for this Crisplet that, that helped spark the inspiration for it. And so it started out as a crisp internal thing, but it's not a crisp internal thing anymore. People all over from different parts of the world and not part of crisp uh, yes. also attend. Yeah, we have about 90 members now, I think. And uh, maybe a half are, are semi-active and maybe 15 people or so are quite active. And they're from all over the place. Although mostly Europe and the US, I don't think we have any from Asia yet. And I don't think we have any from Africa. So we need to spread more. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. I actually attended one of the sessions and, and basically what we did for like an hour and a half, we just talked about all the different resources that we have and we know about and we discussed actions that we can take to actually maybe reduce our carbon emissions or have an impact on others and, and kind of educate the world about these topics. And, and in my opinion, it was a fairly relaxed chat with like-minded people. Yes. So we, so we don't have, I'm not trying to control this community. We don't have any Trello boards and status meetings, really. It's just a loose network of people. And my experience from other places, um, especially in my consulting work, is that when you bring a bunch of passionate people together under a common cause, then good stuff sometimes happens just from bringing them together without much organization needed. So I try to provide the minimum organization needed, just a way for people to reach each other and inspire each other. And also make sure that we don't that we have a kind of a constructive atmosphere, not a bunch of trolling and you know um, negative um, fight infighting going on. So luckily we haven't haven't had any of that so far. So I haven't even had to moderate at all. But someday I'll probably have to, and then I will. <laughs> okay, a lot of good stuff. A lot of very interesting projects. Uh, the topic of this podcast is mostly about like organizations and leadership and how we can change organizations. So I kind of want to still delve a little into that. So you have a lot of experience with change management in companies. So how do you think companies should take all of this into consideration? One thing we did at CRISP, which I would like more companies to do, is to pretty much sign the carbon manifesto, although it didn't exist at the time, but pretty much make a statement and say, we're going to be carbon neutral. Actually, technically, we only did that for our conference flights, but that's our biggest source of emissions at CRISP when we all fly off to some conference. And what surprised me was how easy it was to get consensus on that. When I provided a simple model like, hey, every flight hour, every passenger flight hour equals 100 Swedish crowns. So whenever we fly as a company, we put 100 Swedish kroners per passenger flight hour into a dedicated account. And then the Climate Crisplet uses that to offset in the most effective way possible. So far, we've mostly been investing in trying projects. And that was such an easy step to make, to pretty much offset our travels in an effective way. Plus that generated interest in the company. People started talking about what else can we do? So I think as a starting point, if companies can just take a look at themselves and say, what is our biggest source of emissions as an organization? And then what can we do to reduce those? And the ones we can't reduce, let's just simply offset them. Let's not wait for government to force us. Let's offset them because it's the right thing to do. And that can actually, from a cynical perspective, be a selling point for the company. It can be a marketing thing that, hey, look, we're really trying to be carbon neutral as a company. Come and work for us, buy our products. <laughs> sure. 
when we talk about it like this, I think it sounds fairly easy. I mean, you're like, let's just uh, start offsetting all, all our flights. But then when you walk into the actual day-to-day operations of a company where, of course, there's always a lot of hurry and there's a lot of deadlines to meet, there's other things to do. And those other things actually give you more revenue and give you more profit, or there's a crisis that you need to fix. It's very easy to drop all of this. Do you have any insights on how can we start changing that, that this is not something that's like when we have time for it? I think that's where Agile fits in because companies that go Agile tend to have a little bit more slack. They're not as panicked, just running around in circles trying to deliver stuff. So I find the companies that go Agile tend to be a little bit more focused. So I think those companies are more likely to have the kind of capacity to talk about these kind of things. From an economic perspective, first of all, about offsetting, I want to make it really clear that offsetting your own life as an individual or offsetting your company as a CEO is not, of course, the whole solution to climate change, but it is like a a minimum starting point. If you're not willing to do at least that, then you're not really doing anything. So kind of start with that. From an economic perspective, it's not a lot of money. If a company decides to offset all their flights, that will increase their travel cost by maybe 3 or 4%. Okay, let's travel 3 or 4% less than, for example, or let's spend 3 or 4% less on something else. If that's what it takes for us to become carbon neutral as a company, how's that not a good deal? And I figure that if a company is not willing to do even that, then they have deeper problems. <laughs> so I think of it as there's going to be a number of companies that want to make a difference. Let's help them. And then there's going to be a number of other companies that are more in survival mode. And we'll leave them alone to focus on trying to survive. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe some of them will die off and free up a bunch of resources for people who can start better companies. (laughs) Sure, sure. If I'm an employee at a company, do you have any tips like for me on how could I start this discussion within my organization? That's a really good question. I'm glad you asked that. (laughs) I would say start an internal community. Most companies have internal communities of various sorts. Could be technical communities, architectural communities, uh, innovation groups, whatever it is you have. Use your existing infrastructure for creating communities and create a climate community because you're probably not alone. If you're thinking about this, I bet you're not alone. There's going to be a number of other people who are also thinking about this. And find them and start talking. And what you can do, once you get together as a group, your first question can be, what is the footprint of our company? And where is low-hanging fruit? Where are the small things we can do to make a big difference? For example, offsetting the flights is one of those small things, right? And then put together a case. Go to your management with one message and saying, hey, we have this climate community here. And uh, we think it would be a good idea to try to do something about reducing our footprint. It would be good for the climate, but also good for, for the image of our company. And here's the top three list. We've done a little bit of research and all the data is out there. So it doesn't take a lot of effort. We've done a little bit of research and we've concluded that these are three things that as a company we can do to reduce our footprint. So let's do that and then talk about it and maybe inspire other companies. That's actually a really great tip. I think that's definitely the way to get started because I mean, just thinking about it by yourself is probably like it's too big of a burden to put on one individual within a company. (laughs) And I think there's power in groups. When you talk to people who have similar thoughts, it's easy to kind of talk about what are the next steps or what are the things that we can do and what are the things that will actually have an impact? The key thing though there is to think about what's the worst thing that can happen, what's the best thing that can happen, right? The worst thing that can happen is probably nothing and that's not so bad. (laughs) 
So give it a shot, right? Worst case, nobody listens to you and then you haven't lost really anything. But best case is they actually make a difference to the planet. And that's actually a really good thing. Not only because of what you did for your company, but because how that company inspires other companies. So you might create a chain reaction, which is great. But a really important thing, there's this trap which we easily fall into. Really, really avoid the shame thing, the blame thing, right? It can't be that we try to shame the company into making a difference because that's when you can get ostracized and, you know, labeled as a dogmatic uh, climate fundamentalist. And then you won't be able to make much of a difference after that. I was just about to ask about that because I think that's a huge thing to be very aware of that you can very easily label yourself as a very dogmatic person about this. And that's actually going to be very counterproductive to the whole thing. So having a very pragmatic approach to this will probably have a bigger impact than being dogmatic about it. And also, you don't really need to be dogmatic about it because a lot of the things you do that are good for the climate are also good for the company. So it's not necessarily a sacrifice to do the right thing. That's also an important thing to keep in mind. Thanks for listening, and I really hope that some of that stuff was useful and actionable. You can find links to the stuff we talked about in the show notes. There's also a link to a video that Hendrik made called The Friendly Guide to Climate Change, which is a great primer on the topic. I've personally signed up for Go Climate Neutral, so maybe you should too. You can also spread the word by sharing this episode. This episode of Boss Level Podcast is sponsored by Nest. The renewable diesel that Nesta produces is made mostly from waste and residue. This diesel can reduce greenhouse gas emissions up to 90% compared to fossil diesel. Nesta's renewable diesel is used by Google and UPS, amongst others. So how can you join Nesta on their path to sustainability and renewable products? Well, when you need to travel, you can help by shaping the demand and making responsible choices. When there's more demand for renewable alternatives, there will be more supply. Choose to travel with airlines who use, promote, and develop sustainable jet fuels. Let's work on this from both sides. Go to nested.com to learn more. <laughs>